Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. Dietitian Connection acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording this from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. Now, today we're taking a look at sarcopenia, and sarcopenia has really emerged as a hot topic, I guess, over the past probably 10 years um, in research and clinical practice. But it seems there are still plenty of questions about the nuts and bolts of identifying and managing sarcopenia and where dietitians fit into the sort of overall management. So I'm turning to an expert in the field, Dr. Anthony Vallani, to answer some questions about sarcopenia. Let's look at what it is, who's most vulnerable, and what tools and interventions are available to us. Anthony is an accredited practicing dietitian and senior lecturer in nutrition and dietetics at the University of the Sunshine Coast. He's president-elect for the Australian and New Zealand Society for Sarcopenia and Frailty Research. His research expertise includes nutrition and exercise to support musculoskeletal health and physical function in older adults with a special interest in sarcopenia and frailty. So welcome to our DC podcast today, Anthony. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Jane, for that lovely introduction. Thank you so much for the invite. It's lovely to be uh, with you today. Well, to, to go back to the beginnings of, of your career, Anthony, you've probably noticed by now that male dietitians are still a bit of a minority in our profession. Yes. Um, how did you make your way into, into the world of dietetics? Uh, good question. Um, I've always had a, an interest in in human physiology and um, and food and nutrition. So to me, it just made sense to to combine these two. Um, I also had a, a really strong interest, and I still do to this day, on, on how food and nutrition can. Uh, protect or preserve health and various different health-related outcomes. Um, you know, and being a dietitian, I'm a real uh, people person. I have a keen interest in working with people and helping them achieve their goals. Um, I think this is ultimately the reason why I entered uh, the profession of academia in order to to coach and prepare the the next generation of emerging dietitians to to become the best versions of themselves and and be the best uh, practitioners they can be. So, Anthony, just out of interest, how many males were in your cohort of students? That's a really good question. Um, definitely less than five. I'm going to say two or three. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, yes, the minority and to this day still. Very um, much so. so. So you went on, you did dietetics, and then what's your career journey? What's led you to being in in academic position? Yeah, sure. So uh, I graduated uh, from Flinders University in South Australia. Uh, with so a did bachelor I. 
Oh, there you go, Jane. Yes, all well. Um, so graduated with a Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics with uh, with honours, uh, and that honours pathway allowed me to, to get a real taste for uh, the research space, which is something that, that I sort of immediately went into. So I transitioned directly into a, a PhD, also at, at Flinders Uni, um, and my PhD topic explored uh, field methods of body composition assessed against DEXA for the assessment of body composition in older adults post-surgery for hip fracture. Um, and I really, I really enjoyed my time at Flinders. It shaped the the academic and lecture and researcher that I am today. And this is where I developed a passion for for healthy aging, uh, if you like, as a, as a research interest of mine. And I also got the the opportunity to do some sessional lecturing and some some tutoring in the Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics, um, which really uh, reinforced the the pathway that I wanted to go down as an academic. Um, and I got my first academic job as a, a lecturer at the University of South Australia. During this time as well, I also worked um, as a private practicing dietitian to, to keep up my uh, my clinical skills and clinical muscle there. Um, and in, in 2016, I was lucky enough to be uh, awarded a continuing uh, academic position at the University of the Sunshine Coast, uh, which is an amazing place that I uh, now call home and have the, the privilege to work with some very special people, and that's staff and students included. Um, so as you mentioned in the intro, I'm, I'm a senior lecturer uh, with a, a balanced academic role uh, where I spend uh, most of my time divided between teaching, uh, research supervision, uh, conducting research, as well as uh, internal and external engagement. So when you were doing your PhD and you're looking at body composition, was sarcopenia still quite new and emerging as a as a research topic or very was... very very much so as a research topic i mean the the the, the phrase sarcopenia had been around for for it, uh some some time mm. um but it was still um very much still emerging in the in the research literature yeah very much so it yeah, was more well, the focus I... the focus was more on kind of mal- malnutrition if you like yeah yeah, I had a quick look on PubMed um, earlier, and the huge number. Just put in sarcopenia as a a um, topic, and you know, from the sort of mid nineteen nineties, there were a smattering of papers mm, published mm. each year, and then you get to probably mm, two thousand and ten or so, and it's when it really started to yeah. explode from twenty ten. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. So, so let's talk about sarcopenia. Why is it a concern um, for us and who are the most vulnerable? Yeah, so um, perhaps we'll start with the, perhaps the definition. So yeah, by definition, um, sarcopenia is characterised by an age-related uh, and progressive loss of skeletal muscle mass and function. Um, so whilst sarcopenia is intrinsic to the, that ageing process, uh, it's important to appreciate that it can be exacerbated and accelerated by um, various different clinical conditions, especially where there's high levels of inflammation, for example, or where there's uh, poor nutrition, poor oral intake, uh, chronic disease, uh, and of course, uh, long periods of immobility or, or reduced physical activity. Um, so if we just think about uh, muscle mass for a moment, so muscle mass uh, de- declines, starts to decline by probably about the, the fourth decade of life at a rate of about sort of 1% annually. And that's going to result in about a 50% reduction uh, in overall muscle mass by the eighth decade of life. And reductions in in muscle strength are are even more accelerated, which makes the identification and treatment of sarcopenia incredibly important. Um, But it's sort of in terms of of health-related outcomes, sarcopenia is associated with a number of poor health-related outcomes, including 
mobility, disability, um, subsequent hospitalizations and falls and fractures, then greater length of hospital admissions as well, uh, increased risk of post-operative complications, uh, frailty, um, loss of independence, and of course, premature uh, mortality. So to get this, to make sure I understand it, a loss of muscle mass and strength is and a normal part of aging that is a part of aging but it doesn't have to necessarily mean sarcopenia we can minimize that loss of strength and mass and prevent sarcopenia is that right absolutely it's an intrinsic part of the aging process but we can blunt that or dampen um, that loss of of muscle uh, strength and also function um, through lifestyle modification uh, in particular uh, exercise and, and good nutrition so what are the sort of, or are there specific tools that you can use for identification of sarcopenia? Like are they cutoff points or how, how do you actually identify it? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it was not until 2016 where sarcopenia was finally recognised as a disease entity, um, which is an important step in distinguishing sarcopenia as an actual treatable uh, condition. Um, but getting back to your question, um, it can get quite complicated because there are a number of different operational definitions of sarcopenia in the research literature, and each have their own diagnostic criteria. And we're actually yet to achieve a global consensus uh, for a sarcopenia definition. But irrespectively, um, if you look at the research literature, sarcopenia probably affects uh, around about one in three older adults, depending on the setting and which diagnostic criteria uh, is used. Um, but in Australia, the, the preferred and accepted definition um, that's been recommended by the Australian and New Zealand Society for Sarcopenia and Frailty Research Task Force uh, is the revised uh, European Working Group on Sarcopenia in Older People definition, which identifies three categories of sarcopenia, and that includes probable sarcopenia, confirmed sarcopenia and severe sarcopenia. Now, first and foremost, uh, muscle strength is assessed to identify probable sarcopenia. And this is usually assessed um, with either a handheld grip strength uh, or a chair stand test. And in clinical practice, the identification of probable sarcopenia is, is generally enough to trigger an assessment of the cause of this and to start an intervention um, now, we can confirm sarcopenia. Uh, that's identified through the, the presence of both low muscle strength combined with low muscle quality uh, or quantity. And that's generally assessed through a range of, of different methods, such as DEXA uh, or bioelectrical impedance analysis or BIA for short, uh, MRI or, or CT scanning. And finally, severe sarcopenia is identified when low muscle strength and low muscle quantity or quality is combined with low or reduced physical function. And this can be assessed through methods such as uh, normal gait or walking speed, uh, a short physical performance battery test, uh, a timed up and go test, or a 400 meter walk test. So all of these tests that you're talking about, um, are they available for people to access information about um, from the society or um, websites um, if I want more details about those battery of tests? Um, yeah, so there's certainly um, information on uh, the website. So the Australian and New Zealand Society for Sarcopenia and Frail, uh, the Australian New Zealand Society for Sarcopenia and Frailty Research, so the ANZ SSFR. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
Um, um, we also have a, a task force which is currently involved in developing um, education resources around this as well. So that's something to to uh, keep an eye out for, uh, in the near future as well. And so can sarcopenia be diagnosed in just like a clinic setting or like you talked about DEXAs and no, not necessarily. Um, so you can identify probable sarcopenia just with grip strength alone. So you'd need access to a handheld dynamometer um, for easy. that, which is relatively easy. Absolutely. Or you can use a, just a simple chair stand test, which is even easier. Right. Um, and if we can identify in clinical practice, if you can identify probable sarcopenia, that's generally enough to initiate some kind of assessment and treatment. But in terms of wanting to measure body composition, you you, you definitely don't have to be geared towards a DEXA uh, or a CT or MRI because certainly we you know not many people are going to have access to those right. kinds of equipment. You can certainly use um, more portable methods such as BIA technology. Right. Yep. So. We have someone who has probable sarcopenia um, sitting in front of us. The next step is a treatment or management. Mm. What What is, and you mentioned exercise and nutrition, um, what are the sort of first steps for intervention? Yeah, so that's the million-dollar question. And, and fortunately, the, the characteristics of sarcopenia are modifiable all through lifestyle interventions. So that's specifically exercise and diet. So at the moment, there is no accepted pharmaceutical treatments for the treatment and management right. of sarcopenia. Um, so recommendations around treatment and management is going to, to vary slightly depending on um, whether we're talking about inpatients versus community-dwelling um, older adults. But irrespective, the first line of treatment should be physical activity, in particular resistance exercise. So for older adults over the age of 65, the current recommendations are to participate in at least a 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic physical activity per week, in addition to muscle strengthening activities such as resistance training at least two to three times per week, as well as activities that also may challenge balance, for example. There's Interestingly, there's also high-level evidence from clinical trials and, and systematic reviews, which also indicate that for, for inpatient settings, in-hospital exercise interventions, which which involve, say, progressive resistance training or multi-component programs um, incorporating, say, resistance exercise with balance or gait training are also safe, um, feasible and effective for, for preventing further functional decline uh, during periods of hospital admission. Uh, and that's a really important outcome. But from, from a dietary perspective, protein is obviously critical for maintenance and growth of skeletal muscle, and this becomes even more critical um, with ageing, given the anabolic resistance that's associated with ageing. So we've got guidelines such as you know 1.2 to 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, which have been identified as critical to offset declines in lean body mass strength and function that's associated with age. Uh, the source and distribution of protein is also an important consideration as well. So specifically high quality proteins um, with naturally high concentrations of branch chain amino acids. So in particular, leucine um, from sources such as dairy and eggs and, and meat also become really important and ensuring that this protein is evenly distributed across the day at doses at around 25 to 30 grams uh, per eating occasion uh, to counteract the, the blunted muscle protein synthetic response with age. Now, 
for for inpatients, the primary focus is to prevent loss of muscle and maintain physical function and health-related quality of life. So the best practice guidelines um, recommend a routine screening for malnutrition and implementation of supportive uh, medical nutrition therapy, such as high-energy, high-protein meals and mid-meals. Uh, and this can also involve high-energy, high-protein supplementation, particularly if there's uh, you know poor oral uh, intake or poor appetite. Um, and also from single uh, nutrient perspective, um, there, there may be some that also come into play as well, particularly if there's an inadequacy or deficiency. Um, so nutrients such as vitamin D come to mind. Um, they play That plays an important role in muscle function and muscle integrity. Um, omega-3 fatty acids play an important role in regulation of protein synthesis, um, as well as HMB, which is a metabolite of the amino acid leucine, and that can play an important role in muscle protein synthesis and inhibit muscle protein breakdown, particularly in patients that are immobile or that they have uh, low dietary uh, intake of protein. Yeah, I think that's the considering uh, inpatient admissions of older adults, you know, it's such a classic, isn't it, to see an older adult admitted to hospital and be put into bed the minute yep. they get there, whether yep. they're there for anything to do with mobility or not. And yep. we know how quickly they lose muscle mass. The de um, declines for inpatients and loss of muscle mass are really scary. They Absolutely. are. And they're, they're very uh, rapid and extreme. Yeah. So uh, if anyone listening even has a relative, let alone a patient, in as an inpatient, try and get them up and take them for a walk and get Absolutely. them moving as Absolutely. much as you possibly can. Um, so you talked about some of those specific nutrients there and obviously the importance of protein. I just wanted to touch on quickly um, the Mediterranean diet because I know this has been another area of your research it and is, yeah. how Mediterranean diet can be adapted or utilised for an older adult who might be at risk of sarcopenia? Yeah, the, 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 again, that's emerging research. So we know that healthy dietary patterns in general, um, like the Mediterranean diet, for example, certainly there's literature to show it can decrease risk of things like sarcopenia and frailty. Uh, and, and look, and look, that can be um, for a, a number of different reasons. So whether healthy dietary patterns are, are associated to healthier lifestyles and better health-related quality of life, um, or the combination of the nutrients within the dietary pattern, um, you know, helping to preserve um, musculoskeletal function with age. So we know that um, sort of the omega-3 fish oils, for example, are important in, in regulation of protein synthesis. Um, we've got, a say, in the Mediterranean diet, for example, we've got a high intake of, of uh, fruits and vegetables, and that's going to be important for, for dampening or lowering the inflammatory response that is associated with sarcopenia. So it, that, those kinds of things can be for a whole host of reasons, yeah. Yeah, so so dietitians, and this is our skill at being able to individualise management, you can marry a mid-diet type pattern with the high-protein needs of someone who might be at risk of sarcopenia. Yeah, absolutely, and, and perhaps one of the knocks on, a, say, implementation of a Mediterranean-style diet for an older adult would be, you know, is there enough protein? And, and that's certainly questionable, and particularly the types of protein as well. So there'd be a higher content of plant-based protein mm. um, with the Mediterranean diet. But, I mean, I think that's really flexible and that can be adapted um, to suit the the needs of the patient um, but also the, the needs of the population, the Australian population as well. So it can certainly be modified you know, to ensure that we're getting adequate dairy, for example, and good sources of protein there, but also, um, you know, substituting red meat with white meat to ensure that we're getting um, enough protein for our, for our older patients. Yeah, so if we think about where dietitians 
play a role um, in identification and, and management of sarcopenia. Do they have a role and, and what, what should we be doing as dietitians? Yeah, they, they do. And this is a really important question, Jane. And I think it's something that I don't think is fully appreciated, including within the profession of dietetics. Um, but hopefully um, from the previous question, we're able to uh, appreciate the enormity of the role that dietitians play in, in the management and treatment of sarcopenia through the, the delivery and prescription of individualized medical nutrition therapy. Um, however, but before um, advocating for dietitians and how they can play a role in the identification of sarcopenia, I think it's also really important to appreciate that collaborative and coordinated healthcare is critical in the treatment and management of sarcopenia, as this allows for more uh, efficient care of the patient uh, in order to improve health-related outcomes and improve the, the coordination of patient care. Um, and this fosters interprofessional communication and shares decision-making, role clarification and collaborative leadership. Um, so when we think about the definition and the health-related consequences of sarcopenia, its treatment and management is, is definitely going to involve a range of different health disciplines, ranging from geriatricians and nurses and physiotherapists, occupational therapists, pharmacists, social workers, exercise physiologists, and of course, dietitians. Uh, so aside from the prescription of individualized medical nutrition therapy, clearly dietitians play a, a critical role in the assessment and, and management of malnutrition. But personally, I, I think we as a, a profession can be doing so much more in this space, um, especially around the identification of sarcopenia. And one way that this could be implemented is through the use of a screening tool called the SARC-F, which works in a, in a very similar way to a malnutrition screening tool, but essentially it's used to identify risk of sarcopenia when there's clinical suspicion of sarcopenia, uh, and and that will uh, you know uh, then result in a, a more detailed assessment um, that can be made. But essentially, the SARC-F uh, questionnaire is a really convenient tool that can that can be used in community healthcare or any other clinical settings which asks the patient five simple questions related to their strength, uh, whether they require assistance with walking or rising from a chair, their ability to climb stairs, uh, and also their falls history. Um, so when dietitians are working with older adults in, in any setting, uh, I'm a really big advocate that tools such as the SARCF should complement the nutrition assessment that they're already undertaking because not only will it improve or enhance their overall assessment of the patient, but it also sort of sets the wheels in motion for interprofessional collaborative care and fosters teamwork um, by getting the dietitian uh, talking um, with the geriatrician or the physiotherapist, the occupational therapist, or whoever it may be, um, which will ultimately and, and hopefully lead to, to better patient outcomes. But um, with, with that said, I do fully appreciate that there these are all perfect world scenarios and different work settings have different operational procedures. And there are many different barriers which can definitely hinder a dietitian's ability to be involved in the treatment and management of sarcopenia. Uh, and some of these have actually been published in the academic literature, and these include things like lack of time and resources, um, interprofessional knowledge, role clarification, um, and a lack of collaboration. So if, if a dietitian is sitting, let's think about someone who's perhaps in a, a sole position as a private mm. practice, they incorporate the SARCF into their overall um, nutritional assessment. If they come up with um, and a sort of red flag that this person um, is at high risk, should they go send them, is the first thing to make that note back to the GP or 
do they suggest they Most, go and see a physio or what do I you think, think they of, should do? I think, I think they're all, all of the above there, Jane. Yeah. I think so. I think it's documenting that. It's making um, recommendations to the patient's GP. But it's also, yeah, hopefully if you're working in private practice, you might have some some networks already established around whether they be OTs, physios, um, et cetera. But it's all of the above, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I guess um, with a lot of um, or with more and more people in the community, older adults in the community, under aged care packages, there's potential mm. then if the dietitian is the first one to to do the screening um, using the SARCF, then there are other allied health people involved that they can refer on to. A- absolutely. And, and I still think it's probably confusion as to who does the SARCF as yeah. well. Like a dietitian's probably thinking, is that my job? But then I'm, I'm sure there are other professions saying the same thing as well. And that's kind of where I was going with the, the interprofessional collaboration and the teamwork. It's just so vital here um, in the management of sarcopenia. It is very reminiscent of the sort of early days of malnutrition screenings and also it the whole the definitions yes, and all remi- of those sorts of things. It reminds me of that time and we've come a long way in that space, haven't we? So I'm very hopeful um, that the same can in be rolled out for sarcopenia. Yeah. But having said that, though, I think there's still a way to go in that space with malnutrition as well. Yes, but, agreed, you know, it's, yeah. It, it, it's forever going. Um, so... Okay, so it's a it's a great step then if if dietitians can you know elevate their role here um, in the identification and management, then having an APD as president elect for um, the ANZ SSFR, perhaps you could work on reducing that um, acronym a little bit. Yes. Um, so it rolls off the tongue. It's, but anyway. it's a mouthful. I don't even get it right as <laughs> yeah. well. It is a mouthful. <laughs> However, we do we have an APD as the president elect. So. What are the, some of the initiatives that that you're hoping to to bring to this society to increase awareness um, in the professional circles? Well, first and foremost, it's it's really humbling uh, to be president-elect of the ANZ SSFR. I feel very privileged to be able to work and engage with so many like-minded and very talented researchers and clinicians, each with their own strengths and areas of expertise. Uh, there have been the... some big names as president oh, of this I, I, in I its short history. <laughs> there has been, and I still feel like a fraud. Um <laughs> But having said that, one of the things that I that I do love so much about this society is that we're a multidisciplinary society and it's inclusive of um, not just researchers, but also clinicians from a, a wide range of disciplines spanning from medicine and nursing and physiotherapy, occupational therapy, um, basic science, exercise physiology, and of course, um, dietetics. So if there's anyone out there that has a special interest in healthy aging or or more specifically the treatment and management of sarcopenia and frailty, I would strongly uh, encourage you to join this wonderful society. One of of the other things that I love so much about the society is that everyone is so inclusive and everyone wants to help out where they can. And it doesn't matter if you're an early or a mid-career researcher or you're a clinician, there's always um, some someone out there looking to collaborate with you um, or even promote your work, which is always so nice. Um, and, and as a society, there are certainly a couple of things that we do to promote sarcopenia and frailty research uh, in both Australia and New Zealand, such as our um, annual scientific meeting. Um, so um, I'm also lucky enough also to be um, part of the uh, early and mid-career research group as part of the society. And we also put on at least two free events every year. And these are often online events. So we hold events such as symposiums and discussion forums, and we've been pretty fortunate enough to have some internationally recognised researchers speak at these events, talking all things sarcopenia and frailty, which is great. 
Um, and as I mentioned previously as well, we also have uh, an education task force um, where we're looking at developing uh, various different educational resources, both for clinicians and members of the community around the identification and management of sarcopenia and frailty. So we have a few exciting uh, projects lined up. So for dietitians who might be working in the era of um, with older adults or on the topic of healthy aging, wherever they're, whatever their setting, um, you mentioned perhaps joining society is one good thing um, in their practice, implementing or looking at where the SARC-F might fit. Do you have any other sort of um, tips for dietitians who are interested in this area but haven't really made that next step to incorporate sarcopenia identification or management into their practice? Um. Yeah, pr- probably find get yourself a a, a mentor. I think yes. that perhaps might work in that space as well. Um, and surround yourself um, with sort of like minded people uh, and enjoy what you do. I think that's that's a that's a really in, a, important important one. But uh, a mentor is really important. Um, it, um, it doesn't sort of it doesn't matter if you're a clinician or a researcher. It's always good to have someone to speak uh, speak with and someone that can challenge you um, and not always tell you all the things that you want to hear. So getting a mentor and and working um, with sort of like-minded people um, is, is, uh, I'm a big advocate for. And in your career journey so far, which from my perspective is quite a short journey, but, you know, I'm sure you tell me that you've got many, many years experience, um, (laughs) but it's all relative, isn't it? It's all relative, yep. um, what, What would you say your career highlight has been to date? Um, gee, that's a good question. And, and quite often you don't really stop and think about that no. because you're just always on the go. Like, <laughs> um, so I think um, being promoted to senior lecturer last year was pretty special to me. It's something that I've been working towards for a few years now. And I think when you've got a goal that you've been working towards for a couple of years and you, you finally achieve that, that's that's always nice. Um Another thing that comes to mind in recent times, even though it was incredibly stressful, but having the opportunity um, to be the conference convener um, for the ANZ SSFR annual scientific meeting in 2022 when it was in Brisbane, and that was something that was really, uh, really special to me uh, because I learned a lot. Mm. Um, it was About incredi- organising things or about sarcopenia? <laughs> Uh, mostly around the organisation of things. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't get a lot of time to sort of soak it in and attend all the the, the sessions, um, but learned a lot in terms of sort of organising and, and managing um, the conference. Um, having said that, though, it wasn't just me. I had a, a wonderful team around me. Um, I'm also involved on the committee for the next scientific meeting that's happening in Melbourne uh, next year in 2024. Um, this time around, it's not as stressful, um, but I dare say, I can say that probably because I'm not the convener this time. Yes. I'm just on the organising committee, which is definitely less stressful. Um, and sort of the other thing, um, probably sounds a bit corny, but I really still enjoy working with students and helping them achieve their goals, um, yes. whether they be undergraduate nutrition and dietetic students or postgraduate research students. It's something that I still get enormous joy out of and it makes me happy. Yeah. Um, and so your your role as it's evolved is probably reasonably niche, like sarcopenia is a fairly specific area, is, although yeah. I, I know your research interests are a bit broader than that. But, you know, I think a lot of dietitians um, – still when they enter dietetics, maybe even when they finish, see that working in a acute clinical setting is the the main area mm. that they should be going towards. But mm. if dietitians are looking for something a little more niche or outside the norm, what's your guidance or advice to them? Probably the same in terms of um, getting a mentor, as I mentioned previously, someone that will challenge you. The other thing is um, 
and it's probably a bit of a, a tip that took me, I think, a long time to get my head around is, and it sounds so simple, is don't be afraid to approach people. Mm. Um, you can always add value to whatever someone is, someone or a group of people are doing, even if you think that you can't. You, you definitely can. Everyone has something unique to offer. Um, and quite often big and exciting projects simply start with a, a simple corridor conversation or a simple email. So don't be afraid to approach people. And I'll put a plug in for your conference. If this is an area of interest um, for dietitians, then it's so worthwhile getting to the conferences for those face-to-face events because people, as you say, are always very happy to talk about their presentation or just that networking. And one of the things that, again, that I really love about the ANZ SSFR is, um, you know, big high level people, those professors, they are always willing to help, whether they're clinicians or early to mid career researchers, taking along um, for the ride, you know, giving advice. Um, they're always happy to to promote your work as well because they see um, the value and the contribution that you're making to the field. Um, and honestly, it's such a wonderful society in that regard. Like there's no sort of intimidating figures there at all. Everyone is just so welcoming and, and so lovely. And it's not just for researchers as well. I can't stress enough. It's also for clinicians as well. Mm. So if you're a dietitian working, uh, working in aged care or you're working with older people, um, definitely think about joining the society. And... Just one final question. If we, if I came back to you in five or ten years um, and we're talking about sarcopenia um, in clinical practice then, what would you hope to we've progressed towards? Oh, just a, a very streamlined process where there's one definition and a set of <laughs> diagnostic criteria and then a lovely algorithm that, you know, takes us to what we need to do for the treatment and management. Well, I dare say, I think we understand the treatment and management now. I think we're just sort of still wrapping our head around how can we best identify it, but also more streamlined pathways for clinicians um, to be able to identify it early so we can get some effective um, treatment and management. Well, it's been a really interesting um, discussion with you today, Anthony, and thank you so much for your time. And we'll um, put some of those resources that you mentioned or links to your um, the society um, in the show notes. So interested right. dietitians know where to go to, to get that information. But we really, really appreciate your time today, Anthony. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jane. It was my pleasure. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.